welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Anjali Vatz, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law with a secondary appointment in the Department of Communication. We will discuss her book, The Color of Creatorship, Intellectual Property, Race, and the Making of Americans, which is published by Stanford University Press. So welcome to the show, Anjali. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm delighted to have you on. Um, so I really enjoyed this book, as you know, um, and I've spent some time thinking and, and writing about it myself. But for, for listeners who might not be familiar with the book or the perspective that you're taking, I think for a lot of people, intellectual property, patent law, copyright, trademark, seem like really neutral legal categories. Why do you think that's the wrong way to think about them? That's a great starting point uh, to think about these questions. Um, I'm trained as a critical race theorist, and I know that's been in the news a lot, the conversation about critical race theory. But to me, what that means is um, thinking about law through the perspective of racial equity and saying, hey, what are the ways that this law, even though it might look like it um, should produce equality, doesn't actually do that in practice. So in the context of intellectual property, there, I think, are two real um, helpful questions for thinking about how racial equity does or doesn't work. Um, One is who has control over defining the rights? And I think this is good practice in law generally to say, what are the origins of the law? Where did it come from? Who made the decisions about it? And also who is recognized Um, under that law, right? So who historically have we recognized as authors, as inventors, um, as people with the capacity to trademark versus being imagistically represented? And then how are they represented? Um, And I think we can ask a third question as well, which is um, who uh, ends up winning the cases and how do those cases um, tend to play out. But I actually think that we tend to emphasize that question of outcomes a little too much when we talk about um, legal equity. And in this particular context, it's helpful to say, well, what's happening structurally? What's the historical genesis of copyright law, of patent law, of trademark law? And then who gets recognized under them? Yeah. So, so maybe you could talk about that more specifically and, and starting kind of with this historical perspective, like when we think about intellectual property law from a historical perspective, how do you think that should be informed from a critical race theory perspective? That's a great question. Um, so for me, there is a real necessity to read the origins of law in, in context um, I don't think that law exists in a, in a cultural vacuum. So the idea that law is some neutral handed down from an all-knowing authority um, idea is, is not really a particularly um, useful one. And uh, in that vein, I like to think about what else was going on at the time was at the time the law was being uh, written or produced um, and who had power in that particular cultural moment. I might also think about who didn't have, pow- have power. So um, was uh, the fight for racial equity um, going well or not so well? And in what ways was it functioning? Um, so I'll give you an example. When I write about copyright law and I take a look at 
uh, the era of what is purportedly racial liberalism, right? The height of racial liberalism in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, what I argue, what I see is that um, the conversations about the criminalization of black men that were that are happening um, in Congress, in society more broadly, uh, get projected onto copyright law as a way of criminalizing obscenity, um, as a way of sort of derogating the work of black artists. So I, I think it's really important to think in context um, and to think about also language choices. So um, as someone that's trained as a rhetorician, I am particularly attentive to the um, historical trajectories of language and how we use coded language um, to produce race. So this is a similar approach, I think, to folks like Ian Haney Lopez in White by Law who are looking at how um, statutory language or a judicial language evolves over time. And um, for me, that, that's, a, that's a good way to contextualize history, to get a rich look at what is happening historically when law is being passed. Mm-hmm. Well, so in your book, you focus primarily on kind of three big categories of, of legal rights that we usually put in the basket of intellectual property, um, patents, copyrights, and, and trademarks. I wonder, just for the benefit of listeners, if you could kind of briefly talk about how you think each one of those has been kind of practically speaking affected by the kind of um, racial inequities that, that you talk about in, in your book. In other words, how has that racial inequity manifested itself in the context of, of patent, copyright, and, and trademark law in a kind of practical way? Sure, that's a great question. Um, so let me start with copyright law, which I think, given conversations about music these days and um, some of the uh, reporting of the 1619 Project is um, maybe most accessible for folks. Um, so in the context of copyright, I am interested in looking at how creatorship is defined, how authorship is defined, and um, how um, the law of copyright, including fair use, is structured to include certain people and exclude certain people. Um, what I do generally in in looking at all three of these areas is uh, that I identify a theme that seems to animate that area of law over time. And I look at about 200 years. Um, So in the context of copyright, the idea that I think is pretty consistent is that of true imagination. Who actually possesses, quote unquote, true imagination, which is a phrase that Thomas Jefferson used. Um, And how does that concept sort of get used over time to exclude um, people of color generally and um, in the context of music, for instance, Black people more specifically, um, from access to authorship um, in the way that white people have access to authorship. So um, when I study copyright law or when I look at copyright law, the outcome is that for me is that um, this idea of true imagination gets used as an exclusionary tool to deem people of color creatorship as um, not deserving of protection. Um, in the context of patent law, I think a similar thing happens around the idea of human progress. So there's two words there, human and progress, um, in looking at jurisprudence, in looking at um, political texts and looking at artwork. I think what we see is that we imagine certain people as possessing the capacity to um, advance uh, progress and also to access the category of humanness. 
And that's really where a secondary part of the argument comes in about citizenship. Uh, the ways that we think about citizenship um, really affect and are intertwined with the ways that we think about intellectual property. Um, lots of scholars have written about this, like uh, Jessica Silby's work comes to mind in thinking about how intellectual property makes implicit claims about citizenship. And I am interested in, in many ways about the implicit racial claims that it makes about citizenship. Then that last category is trademark. Uh, and trademark's a little different than the other two categories because it doesn't necessarily involve uh, a creator um, in a conventional sense. But um, there is a representational politic that emerges in trademark law. What I see there is that there is a particular kind of white male consumer gaze that structures trademark law and that structures the outcomes in trademark cases. Mm-hmm. Well, so to the extent that we bring a critical race theory perspective to to the way we think about what intellectual property law looks like now and what maybe it should look like in in the future, how do you think kind of in a big picture sense that should affect the way we do intellectual property law and maybe whether and how we do intellectual property law? And what would that mean in the context of particular legal regimes? This is such a great question because it highlights where my interdisciplinary training perhaps produces uh, less tangible outcomes than lawyers might like. Um, And uh, the ways that I'm invested in in theoretical orientations is a way of guiding our, um, our actions. So what do I mean by that? The book sort of concludes with a conversation about um, fugitivity in the context of intellectual property. And fugitivity is this idea that a Black Studies scholar, Fred Moten, um, calling him a Black Studies scholar seems really uh, not to get at the full um, the full interest of his work. But uh, that's that's what I would say. Um, this idea of fugitivity is really helpful in thinking about what it means to act in opposition to a body of law that has been historically racially exclusionary. Um, what that means for me in practice is, uh, as I apply it to a number of case studies, is that we can think about um, multiple um, forms of resisting intellectual property law as an exclusionary form of law. So one of those might be performative. We might think about in our everyday lives, what can we do to um, maybe culture jam, to use the adbusters phrase, intellectual property law. So how can we engage with intellectual property uh, in ways that might uh, not uh, fully comply with the law? The um, the uh, case with the, with the Nike Satan sneakers comes to mind here. Um, as an example of how we can play with intellectual property performatively. Um, I also think there's an ethical question to be had here, right? So how can we as intellectual property lawyers and professors say, um, I'm interested in, in redefining the ethics of intellectual property. Maybe that looks like liberalizing uh, the law to the extent I can through uh, creative commons uh, practices or through teaching a different set of cases in the classroom. So we can think about tangible actions that relate to our ethics. 
And then, of course, legislatively and judicially, we can think as well about how we might contest intellectual property law. Um, I think the consensus uh, amongst the intellectual property scholars is it's really hard to reform legislation, but um, we can certainly imagine progressive arguments in the courtroom um, or, um, you know, moments of argumentation, uh, whether it's amicus briefs or, or other practices that can help us produce more um racially equitable law. Maybe we could, for the purpose of kind of more granular examples, we could talk a little bit more about about copyright law, because I feel like in in a lot of ways, it seems most kind of familiar and maybe even intuitive to to most non-lawyers and and legal scholars. So to the extent historically, and maybe in a contemporary sense as well, copyright law has systematically undervalued the contributions of the authorial contributions of people of color and overvalued the authorial contributions of, of white people. What should that tell us about you know, how we should think about and structure copyright law in the future. Does that mean we need more copyright law? Does it mean we need less copyright law? Does it mean we should think about copyright law as a a kind of a modality for redistributive justice? Like, what does that mean in practice? So I think in practice, it means all of the above. Um, I, I hesitate to say um, there are certain approaches that we should never take because I'm sort of at a place where I believe that all of the different ways that we can resist systems are important. Um, there is a the group of people, I think um, Professor um, KJ Green is in this group um, that that say, you know, um, we need equity using copyright law in order to remedy some of the injustices, the historical injustices uh, that exist in the world. And I um, respect that opinion and I respect that um, strategy of um, producing a sort of um, restitution, restitutional justice for people of color. I think the approach that I am more interested in is what it means to undo forms of intellectual property law and ultimately uh, what it means to reconstruct intellectual property law, copyright law in this case, um, from different epistemological vantage points. What does it mean to um, start with indigenous understandings of knowledge and build a copyright system up from that vantage point? That's obviously a long-term strategy um, and given the way that our national conversation is going and being around basic rights these days, I think um, that's perhaps something that we need to work towards while also recognizing the political realities that we live in. So I'll give you an example of a piece that I just finished that I think is is really tangible in the context of, of, of copyright law. Um, but essentially the argument that I make is that fair use, even though we want it to be sufficient to help Um, artists and artists of color in particular to get the rights that they deserve under copyright law doesn't get the job done because it exceptionalizes black brilliance instead of recognizing the breadth and diversity of that brilliance. Um, In some ways, in contrast to uh, the conventional forms of authorship or or, um, artistic production, 
So the argument that I make there is that that redefining the purpose of copyright law might be helpful in articulating a broader vision of what it means to create and a vision that is inclusive of um, remix culture or of sampling culture. And the rationale for that is that fair use didn't really get the job done, even though we wanted it to. So maybe it's time to create some new strategies. Maybe you could expand on that. I mean, how would you like to see the kind of public or social conception of the purpose of copyright law changed or modified in order to better reflect sort of social values we at least purport to hold and maybe drive the kind of progressive development of the social values in the future? That's a great question. Um, You know, Lots of people have written about the romantic author and this idea of the person that's sitting in isolation sort of comes up with an idea independent of um, the rest of society. And we know that that's not really how uh, the creative process works. So what I'd like to see is more expansive readings of some of the terms in the, in the Copyright Act to understand that creativity is actually a collaborative and fluid process. So for instance, we might think about copying more broadly. We might think about copying not as the kind of bludgeon that it's used as in grand upright music, um, but rather think about copying as um, something that is in relationship to creative process. So what does it mean to write that into court cases? What does it mean to write that into um, briefs um, as uh, lawyers are, are, are advocating for their clients? Those are questions that I'd like to see us grapple with as a field or subfield as time goes on. Because I think there's a, an acceptance of the interpretation, a rather narrow and culturally uh, narrow in particular understanding of the Copyright Act that prevents us from broadly including the work of scholars of color. Uh, Kemper McLeod has done work on um, thinking about this in the context of music. So has um, Professor Green. And part of the argument that they make is that that print cultures are heavily um, privileged under U.S. copyright law. So one question we might ask is, what does it look like to imagine interpreting um, the Copyright Act in a way that's more expansive in that respect. Um, there's obviously a wealth of scholarship on that, that question in particular. Um, Funmi Arewa's work comes to mind as well um, that points to the double standards that have emerged. So I think the, that practically a uh, question we need to ask is how to um, work those ideological objections into the everyday practice of law. Mm. Well, so one thing that struck me while, in particular while, while reading your book was that we as lawyers and legal scholars tend to talk about intellectual property as a kind of a category as fundamentally about the allocation of economic interests. And yet we all kind of know in our hearts that it's deeply normativized at at the same time. And it, it seems kind of unsurprising that a kind of a normatively inflected set of enterprises would reflect the normative perspectives of the culture creating and, and enforcing them. 
I mean, to what extent do you think we need to think about intellectual property as a kind of category more normatively in the future, or at least think about the normative aspects of it more concretely in order to think about what we're doing and why we're doing it? Yes, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, I I really do think that, that thinking about and deconstructing intellectual property as, as normative as opposed to purely economic um, is the project that needs doing. Um, and so many, like I said, so many scholars have, have started this conversation. Um, Madhavi Sundar's work comes to mind. Keith Aoki's work comes to mind. Margaret Chan's work comes to mind. These are all scholars that are fundamentally pushing back against law and economics as the framework for um, thinking about intellectual property. What I will say about um, your question is this, that for me, um, both going to law school and then going to graduate school made me realize how much work I had to do uh, in terms of recognizing the different ways that intellectual property is normative. Um, so that is a project of self, and it is also a, a project of um, embracing culturally diverse understandings of starting points for law. Um, and I do think, like I said, that's a conversation that's underway, but also that we're finding new ways to say, oh, I didn't think of that before. You know, how does thinking about um, a black brilliance in a different way help me to um, go back to this case with fresh eyes? Right. And I think that is an iterative process that we need to do to say, I've learned this thing over here about social justice. How can I take that principle and use it to rethink um, this case that I'm familiar with? Right. Campbell versus Acuff Rose, which I've read many times and I've read, you know, what Henry Louis Gates had to say about that case. Or I've read what Kimberly Crenshaw had to say about that case. But now we're in this other place and we've learned these other things. And let's go back to the case and ask some more questions. That's the, you know, both, I think, difficult and also wonderful thing about social justice as an evolutionary process. Many of us, most of us perhaps look back to the 90s or the 80s and we say, oh, there are better ways to, of doing things. Let's not make that pop culture anymore. Let's not treat people that way anymore. Um, and those same um, ideas, I think, are incumbent upon it's incumbent upon us in intellectual property law to, to bring those same principles to the cases that we know. So, one aspect of your book I found especially interesting was your your conversation of of commerce and and trademark law because I, I think it's <clears throat> I think it's in some ways more natural for people to think about a lot of the kind of value laden normative judgment calls that you're talking about in the context of, of copyright law. But in a lot of ways, trademark law is also a way of communicating information and values. In fact, I would I'd suggest that maybe in some ways a more important way for a lot of people of communicating information and values than works of authorship in the traditional sense might, might be. What is this mean? What does this perspective that you're bringing to these questions mean in the context of trademark law and, and commerce? And how should we think about kind of normatively laden values in the context of an explicitly economic exchange? 
Let me start uh, answering that question by talking about two approaches that inform um, my analysis of trademark law. So one is the idea of racial scripts, which um, Natalia Molina writes about in a, in a sociological um, and historical context. Uh, Natalia Molina talks about racial scripts as these shorthand understandings of race that just get invoked at different moments over time. And they're sort of what uh, Professor Lopez might call dog whistles. They are um, these catchphrases that are familiar to us. And because they're familiar to us, we can do informal racialization while seeming race neutral. I think we all became familiar with this during the Trump administration. We also had a, a, a recap of what overt racism looks like. Um, so that's one perspective. Um, another perspective here is a visual rhetorical one. Um, and the question that I, that I come to visual rhetoric with is how does the context in which we exist get produced and um, what sort of cultural outcomes are the result of it? So in the context of trademark law, I said, well, what's the, what sort of visual outcomes do we get from the trademark law that we have? And why do we get those visual outcomes? So we know that the visual outcomes are racist trademarks. And we know that there's a long history of racist trademarks in the United States. So for me, thinking about questions of optics and thinking about questions of looking helped me to understand um, what sort of what Judith Butler would call scopic regimes we end up with. And I think that there's an interrelationship between the scopic regimes in which we exist and the conclusions that we draw about creators, about um, authors, inventors, etc. And so for me, uh, that visual culture that we produce through trademark law defines uh, creatorship in other spaces. So Anjali, your, your book has been out for a while now, and I think has prompted a really interesting conversation. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about a little bit about how people have responded to it and maybe how those responses have informed your sort of perspective on on the project that you that you tackled in this in this project. Absolutely. I've been pleased um, that scholars, practitioners, lawyers from different spaces have responded to the book and taken up conversations and case studies uh, in different ways. I've had the opportunity to have conversations about seeds, about music, about publishing. Um, and these are all different aspects of the book that call for um different analyses of inequity and how inequity plays out in an industrial uh, context. The thing I'll say about this is uh, that my expertise is in race. And what is exciting and also um, challenging about these conversations is that they're a collaborative process of learning more about the industries and learning more about how the fine grain of policy reform um, or of um, norm production needs to change in those areas. What I have been most grateful about is the opportunity to connect um, in the after the sort of after writing of the book with um, 
people that are doing that nitty gritty work and then um, sit down with them and think about how we might, as I said, apply those principles in the areas in which they exist, because they have that expertise um, of the everyday of what the problems that they're facing look like, what's working, what's not working. Um, And I can sort of sit down and say, um, if we think about race this way, how might we um, want to change the course of action um, in the area in which you work. Uh, the conversation I most recently had the opportunity to have was about publishing equity in academia. Um, so in the context of publishing equity, thinking about contracts is really important. Thinking about what publishing contracts do, um, who gets them, why they get them, um, what sorts of values are built into those contracts, when those contracts are written, um, all of those questions um, helps to get us closer to that racial equity that we say that we want. Anjali, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed talking to you about your book, and I hope listeners will pick up a copy and, and read it for themselves. Thanks so much. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. We move